investors would be very happy to finance solar on a school because they're seen as a very low risk counterparty. As I said, they don't go bust. Schools don't tend to close. Um, and so we came up with this model of putting solar on schools. And we thought this is going to be great. It's going to be super easy because schools are going to love the idea of saving electricity and cutting their carbon footprint. Investors are going to love investing in a sort of stable, safe project. And off we go. We got one part wrong. The bit about schools being able to sign up easily. No one's built software to do this before. Not exactly what we're doing. Uh, and therefore, we had to sort of go out there and try and develop a project on a school work out how you do it, work out what the processes are, work out what the steps are, work out how to optimize those steps before we could then digitize them. You say, yeah, that worked, that was easier, that was better, that was not. So you kind of have to eat your own dog food um, to, to develop a tool in an area that, that that's new. To get the recipe right took a very long time. In order to grow quickly and sustainably over a, you know, a decade or so, uh, you need to have a financially viable underpinning. It can't be a charitable thing. We can't just expect donations and give away solar panels on schools. That just doesn't grow fast enough. Lots of people have tried that. It just doesn't grow. If it's a business where the sales cycle is a year and you've been doing it for two years, that's probably too soon to give up. Um, so it is possible to try too long. So how do you know what's long enough? And I think my formula would be three iterations. And how long does it take to do three iterations? And if it's a quick business and it takes three months to do an iteration, then you should know within a year. And if it's a slow business because of slow cycles and it takes a year, then you should allow at least three years. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Growing a company that aims at having a sustainable impact is not easy. That's why I created Mission First. In each episode, I interview one entrepreneur who has a sustainable mission and who has recently gone through the difficult first years successfully. Together, we discuss their challenges and what they have learned on the way. We go into detail with a specific focus on company culture leadership, financing, growth, and business strategy. That way, you'll learn hands-on tips on how to build a better future and a successful company too. So today I have the chance to talk to Robert Trimpf. Robert is a serial entrepreneur. He has been the founder, the CEO, interim CEO, or director of six different companies, mostly in the energy sector. So he has a huge entrepreneurship and business experience. In 2015, he took the bet to start a new company called Solar for Schools. Schools can avoid producing a whopping 50 million tons of carbon emissions a year by installing solar panels. With his company, Robert provides solar energy to schools and education on energy and sustainability to the kids of these schools. They already provide solar panels to over 150 schools in the UK and Germany, They have educated more than 77,000 kids and teenagers on sustainability and how to cut carbon emissions with renewable energy. Their mission is to educate 2 billion children in the world. So today we are talking about a company that has and can have a massive impact on our world and our future. So I'm really glad to welcome him today. Robert, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. How are you? Thank you very much. A very flattering introduction. 
Uh, and uh, very excited to be here trying to share uh, some experiences and lessons learned with others trying to make the world a little bit better. Yes, thank you very much. I saw that you were, you said that you were a big fan of Greta uh, and uh, I'm a big fan as well. And you you think she has done good for your sector. I guess you meant the energy sector. Uh, can you explain me a bit which change you've observed in your sector when you when you said that? I, I sometimes say that Greta's our best unpaid salesperson. So, so the idea of putting solar panels on schools is not new. Um, a number of charities started doing it 15, 20 years ago, um, but most of them didn't have a commercial underpinning to ensure long-term sustainability of the model. So they did it for a few years based on donations, then they got bored of the idea, then stopped. Um, and so that was a kind of the first wave. The second wave was when feed-in tariffs came along and uh, masses of people started putting solar on everything, including schools. And then when the feed-in tariffs went away, um, that kind of stopped. But schools were still under the impression they could get solar for very little uh, and huge discounts. Now, without subsidies, it's still possible to do solar on schools. But uh, the expectation that they could have solar panels for nothing or at a huge discount has been a limiting factor in terms of its wider adoption. And where Greta has helped is by shifting the priority from I'm going to put solar on my school to save money to I'm putting solar on my school to help the planet. And that's where she's made a massive difference. It's changing that priority. Oh, fantastic. Can you explain us a bit what is solar for schools and a bit about your, your mission, even though I've already mentioned it, but you can maybe iterate and give us a bit more details about exactly what you do and what's the process you use to provide solar education, solar energy and education to the school? Sure, happy. Um, maybe I should start with where I was, what I was doing before. Um, before starting solar for schools, I worked with two venture capital firms, one based in Germany and then subsequently one based in the UK. So I spent uh, seven, eight years looking at technologies in the clean tech space, as it was then called, uh, to help decarbonize um, our society. And it was fascinating. I must have looked at over a thousand businesses. Um, we invested in a bunch of technologies. Um, we worked very hard with a whole bunch of entrepreneurs to make those technologies work. And the challenge that we had in most of those companies was not that the technology didn't work, but that the adoption rate of those technologies was just too slow. And the basic driver was you'd go to a potential customer and they'd go, why should I replace my existing equipment with your new piece of equipment? just because it has a lower, what did you say it was called? Carbon footprint, whatever that is. Um, and, and so these companies just really struggled. And so it became increasingly obvious to me that we weren't moving fast enough and that what we needed was a massive mind shift, not necessarily a new technology. Yes, we will need a whole bunch of new technologies, in particular better batteries um, or, or, or cheaper batteries. Uh, but it, it actually the technologies we have will get us some of the way there. We just need to deploy more of them. So I then spent a lot of time looking at where we could deploy more solar Um, to buy us the time for the world to then sort of realize what needed to be done with these new technologies. And then we, when you then look at commercial solar, where's the best place to put solar? Yes, you can put it in a field, but it's you know centralized. It's uh, You need a lot of grid connections, et cetera, et cetera. The best place to put it would be on roofs, 
not residential roofs because by and large you don't consume much during the day. You have this big mismatch issue. So you really want commercial roofs. If you look at commercial roofs, you have another challenge, which is that often the landlord and the tenant are not the same person and they have a mismatch in terms of their long-term interest. The landlord wants you to be there for as long as possible. The tenant might only want to be there for five years and have the flexibility. And if you're then trying to provide funded solar to a commercial rooftop, you then have that issue and it's very difficult. So we then started looking at public buildings to put solar onto them. Um, and then you realize that most public buildings are, you know, tall, beautiful buildings in the center of town um, or a hospital with lots of sort of air conditioning equipment on it or a school. So then I thought, okay, let's focus on schools, you know, big buildings. Uh, they consume electricity during the day. Um, they're going to be around for 20, 25 years. It makes all the sense in the world. And then clearly schools don't have the money to do this in most countries. So we need to come up with a funded model. Uh, but investors would be very happy to finance solar on a school because they're seen as a very low risk counterparty. As I said, they don't go bust. Schools don't tend to close. Um, and so we came up with this model of putting solar on schools. And we thought this is going to be great. It's going to be super easy because schools are going to love the idea of saving electricity and cutting their carbon footprint. Investors are going to love investing in a sort of stable, safe project. And off we go. We got one part wrong. <laughs> The bit about schools being able to sign up easily. Signing a 25 or 20 year contract with the school is a real challenge. And the decision making process that schools have to go through to do that are a real challenge. And we, quite frankly, struggled for the first few years trying to get around that. And that was one issue. The other issue is huge suspicion. Um, schools couldn't really get the idea that they were going to get something that was cheaper, no upfront cost, no risk. Oh, and some education thrown into, and they're like, you know, really? And, and they were one of the lessons is that they were very suspicious, and so we had to go to a huge effort to uh, create trust, and we had to go to a huge effort to understand their procurement processes and get around those. And, and I nearly gave up. Um, and then one day, I was trying to persuade a friend, uh, a neighbour who's just building himself a new house, to put solar panels on his. Um, roof and have a heat pump instead of a gas boiler which is what he was intending to do and i showed him all the rational arguments the long-term economics the, the payback the savings the carbon footprint story everything not interested he said look quite frankly my installer said this and i'm going to do it i've already made the decision i'm going ahead and no argument i could throw at him would change his mind and i went home pretty depressed um nearly in tears in fact and um i said like, i can't persuade this guy and this guy used to work for an insurance company i mean they know the impact of climate change yeah if i couldn't persuade him to make a difference to change what hope did we have and my daughter heard me and went round and spoke to his daughter good friend and over lunch one day they tackled him and, and not physically tackled him they talked to him about it and um he changed his mind and decided to go for heat pumps and solar. And that's when the penny dropped. And I said, okay, it's really hard to get this onto a school, but we have to do it because our generation doesn't really care and is not doing enough about it. But that generation does. They're going to be around for the next 50 years or so. They care about it, but they're currently quite powerless to do anything about it. Or so they think. Yeah. They're incredibly powerful and in that they can pester parents to change. And that, that penny, that was when I said, okay, we have to make this work. So we redoubled our efforts um, and kept trying. And for many years, I, I, I still don't take a, a salary. Um, 
and to, to build this the, the, the business and gradually get rid of all the problems and all the reasons why a school couldn't do this. And, and we've managed. We've succeeded to do this now in the UK and Germany, and we're working on the process for India and a number of other countries. Um, to then go in to, the, 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 to install the solar panels on the schools, and the really important bit is the education that we can then give those students. And, and not just teaching them about climate change, some of them know a little bit about that, but showing them what they can do to accelerate the pace to carbon neutral uh, society. And that's a really exciting bit. And so in at what stage are you right now? So um, maybe to, to give us a good idea of that, um, let's talk a bit about numbers. How, how big is the team right now? So we've just had three more people. So we're now just over 22 full-time equivalents. So we're still a very small team. Uh, we're okay. operating in three countries with teams. We've got a team in the UK, a team in Germany, and our back office, an IT development team in India. Um, and then through partners, we're now starting to operate in Colombia, Spain, uh, New Zealand. And we're in conversations with half a dozen other countries um, to partner and roll out this the, 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 the solution um, to partners, to schools in other countries too. Okay. And in terms of financing, uh, how much have you raised so far? So we've raised just over 1.2 million uh, pounds to date um, from mainly an international network of angels. And we're in the process of doing our A round now, um, which has taken a while to prove the model to the point where we're ready for an A round. That That's something I underestimated. Um, but we're in the process of raising five million. Uh, we have uh, commitments from one from, for the first million already, uh, and we have enough interested parties based on the one, the amount that they would like to invest to probably complete the round at a, uh, at, the, at the full amount. Um, and we're just waiting for uh, valuation offers at the moment. Okay, and in terms of um, like break-even points, uh, how are you right now? Are you really profitable? So. At an operational level on the teams that develop projects using our tools, um, yes, uh, they are profitable. Uh, at an overall company level, uh, we're operating on a cash flow break-even, but that's because some of the founders and senior uh, management are taking shares rather than salary at the moment. Let's start at the beginning, because you mentioned that you, you barely like paid yourself a salary as well. So how do you start in 2015 Uh, do, do you start it in parallel to your own job? Uh, how do you create the company? How do you start? Who do you who do you start it with, basically? I have to say I was very fortunate uh, in that the fund I used to work for before Greenco Capital, um, I had some shares in that fund, and the partnership agreed to buy me out of that fund uh, over a period of time. So for nearly seven years, I have an income stream from that gradual earnout uh, from that fund. And that was a lucky break. Um, and that's what allowed me to sort of survive while building the company. Uh, that plus, um, we happened to buy a house that's a little bit too big for us. So uh, our guest apartment, we've done Airbnb on it for the last four years and my wife's been running that. So that provides an income stream too. Um, so yes, I was very fortunate that we had some income from two other sources that we could then survive on without eating into our savings too much. 
Okay, to be able to pay yourself. And But how long, when you start in 2015, do you start, how long do you stay alone before basically getting someone else on board as an employee or as a co-founder? I've always started my businesses with one other person. I, I always start with someone else. Um, and that's a, a style thing. I, I have entrepreneur friends who like to start businesses themselves. Uh, or have entrepreneur friends who basically from day one ha CEO who's going to run it and basically they just coach them. Uh, in my case, I liked to run the businesses for the first X years or for as long as the the company needs me or I can't replace myself with someone even someone better. Um, but but I always tend to start a company with a complementary individual. So I find someone who's complementary. Uh, and start my business. So in this case, it was someone who had a lot more experience in developing projects, um, in renewable projects at scale, and someone who I'd worked with for three or four years previously in my previous roles. Okay, and what are the first steps in 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 after you you create your company? So you decide to that you need to educate the children in order to educate the the parents and to make also this move to the solos. Uh, through solar panels uh, in schools. So, how? What are the first steps to to contact these schools? What are the first experience you you you've made? So, um, my in my previous life, I was involved with the internet a lot. So, the whole idea was to digitize the processes to make them as efficient and low cost and transparent as possible. Um, so, we started with a website, and we started through social media. And the idea was when we first started that parents would uh, find out about this idea and that they would then promote the idea to the school as a means of the school saving money. And at the time, that was quite possible for school to save a reasonable amount of money day one without any investment. And so as a way of school supporting, sorry, parents supporting schools. So we did quite a lot of Facebook marketing um, and used that to then optimize the onboarding process on our website um, to generate leads at the lowest possible cost. So that was kind of step one. Uh, and from day one, we were adamant that we were trying to get to the point where a school would sign a contract without us hiring an army of salespeople walking around and visiting every school because we knew that was too expensive and too inefficient. Uh, and we, it took us about nine months to sign our first, um, school up. Um, but we had 300 leads. Uh, so if you think of one sign-up versus 300 potentials, the conversion ratio was pretty terrible. Um, very cheap, but terrible. Um, and if you're then trying to do thousands of schools, that's obviously not going to work. Um, so we then focused on targeting the schools directly uh, or finding champions within the schools. We basically found that parents would sort of pass the ball onto the school and then sort of run away. Uh, and you really needed to engage with the teachers, a science teacher, a governor, someone at the school. So that was kind of the second push. Uh, and that is harder to get the leads, but the conversion ratio was better. Um, but the third stage was when it started to really move more quickly, which is when we engaged with the trusts, the Darcy's, the councils, who then were involved with not just one school, but multiple schools. Um, and once we worked out how to work with them, they could then promote it to the schools within the regulations and the restrictions of Ryan procurement 
and then you wouldn't sign up one school. You'd have you'd build one relationship and get twelve schools. Um, so one lead then led to many schools rather than many leads leading to one school. How are these councils organized in, in the UK? Because it's something a bit new for me, for example, in Belgium, it's something that I don't personally know. So the first the, fir the first experience you said was, you know, mostly through social media, lots of leads, very cheap and like very low conversion rate. Then using these like parents as champions, which had, had a higher conversion rate, but was pretty slow. And then when it started to work, uh, it started to work with these councils. So how are they organized in the UK and uh, how did you manage to convince them and why did you manage to convince them? I think we probably didn't manage to convince them and haven't managed to convince them. It's just that the world has moved on. And in the UK, for instance, there are more and more councils who are declaring a climate emergency and setting themselves targets to decarbonize within 20 to 30 years. And as part of that, suddenly we become very relevant. Before, it was you're just some other guy trying to rent some school roof to put solar on it. And now it's, okay, we can see that by working with you and partnering with you, we can achieve our carbon reduction goals. So timing was crucial. Yeah, timing. And maybe Greta Thunberg helped on that timing. So thank you, Greta, again. And also... We learned about what the restrictions were around councils. Councils can't, the relationship between a council and a school is quite an interesting one. The, 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 the governors of the school make the decisions, but they are restricted by certain criteria that the council dictates. The council can't say, can't approve our system, our, our, our methodology or our PPA, but they can, they can, endorse it indirectly or work with us to help the schools across the line. But it's a very fine line that is still being worked out as to where what we can do and how we work with the council. That's becoming much, much clearer and has become completely clear in the last uh, year as to where our role and how we work with the council. Uh, so where the, whereas at the beginning we were seen as a one-stop shop where we would turn up and put solar on a school under a PPA agreement, power purchase agreement, And the school basically bought the electricity from the solar panels and we did everything. And it was a bit of a black box. That was quite difficult for them to get their head around. Now we work with them saying, well, look, here's our process and our systems and our tool set to develop projects. This is how they're funded. And this is how we manage the systems. It's all very open and transparent. And we can help you get more of your schools across the line, whether because you fund them and we'll help you manage the funding or because... Uh, you manage them and we'll provide you with the tools to manage them. Uh, and, and so they can pick and choose the elements of our digitization process to enable their own operations to be more effective. And that's working really, really well because they now see us as a sort of tool provider, solution provider to enable them to do the solar on the schools rather than us coming along and sort of taking over their schools. So you made them part of the solution. Yeah. Is that one of the reasons where, where you, for example, like... You explain to me why would you bother to develop the project yourself? Initially, it wasn't that just you know building up the software and the systems and then like selling them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Ultimately, we will be a software solution provider um, where our license fee will basically be a revenue share of the projects that it develops and manages, uh, and it will be sort of there's about four components to that software stack. 
But in order to build all those software stacks, you know, we had to do it ourselves first um, because no one's built software to do this before, not exactly what we're doing. Uh, and therefore, we had to sort of go out there and try and develop a project on a school, work out how you do it, work out what the processes are, work out what the steps are, work out how to optimize those steps before we could then digitize them. We had to do all that. We've now done that for about 150 schools and growing. Um, so we've got the experience that built to digitize those tools and then create those tools and then test those tools with the projects that we're doing. So yeah, that worked. That was easier. That was better. That was not. So you kind of have to eat your own dog food um, to, to develop a tool in an area that, that that's new. Talking about the, the process to, to get these feedback and to include these the council and, and the people, the stakeholders in the, the product development, how do you proceed like with the, with the schools at the beginning? Did you... Uh, do you install them and then it, it came out directly as, a, as the first feedback and then you adapt directly? Did you wait? Did you make some surveys after? Uh, did you Have you done some, some kind of like research, service design research while doing it as well? It's an extremely good question. And one of the, the challenges we have, you know, I came from a purely internet world where if you'd made a change to a website, you could then monitor it through your analytics uh, and the traffic that you got to it. And depending on the level of traffic, you would know within hours or days whether your modification to your website was better. So when you're trying to do optimization of online lead conversion, that's really quick. The learning curve is really fast. As soon as you go kind of offline into the sort of real hard world and you've got a decision-making process at a school that can take a year Yeah. If you then make an optimization to your process, it could take two years before you know if it's made any difference. And, and that was one of the hardest bits and probably why it took us as long as it did to get to where we are now um, to optimize the whole process because the, 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 the feedback loop is very slow. So you start working with the council and you start working with them how they work because that's the only way to work with the council when you first start working with them. And You have to then work with them for probably about 18 months before you realize all the problems that they have that with their existing mechanism. And then you start having conversations about those issues with them. And then it probably takes them another six months to then acknowledge that there is a better way of doing it. And then probably another six months before they then prepare to try your new way of doing it. And then probably another six months before they actually prepare to do it in mass. And before you know it, three years have slipped by. And, and so it's a very much a uh, iterative process But it's an iterative process that has taken a very long time because you're in a cycle that's very slow. Now, once you've iterated and you've defined it, the next council is much, much faster because you can point to your first council and say, hey, look, this is what we've been doing with Munich City Council. This is the process that we've developed. This is how it works. This is how you do it. So the second and third and subsequent councils all become much, much faster. But to get the recipe right took a very long time. And I guess that's one of the reasons why, in that case, you needed funding to be able to sustain yourself during all these learning periods. Yeah. And I saw some some teenagers on the videos on your YouTube uh, uh, website, on your YouTube page, explaining how you know how to use your software, your software to create uh, the, the solar panels uh, system of their own schools. And uh, I find that like magnificent and, and great to see the students involved and being able to do that themselves. When did you start to develop that uh, software and how did you develop that software? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So we started developing 
some simple tools that we could use internally to quickly size up a roof. So before you spend lots of time trying to persuade a school to go ahead, you want to make sure that if they say yes, that it actually works. So you need a very quick process to understand that as part of your sales cycle. So we built what we refer to as a sort of panelizer, which is a sort of Google Maps implementation where you could drop some colored blocks on top of the roof to, to see how much would fit. Um, and then one day we were sort of showing this to some students and they said, oh, wow, can we do one? I went, okay. And they started doing their own roof. And then they said, can we do another roof? And some of them kind of looked at each other and went, wow, maybe this is something that they would like to do. So that the idea came from students effectively. The idea that we could then turn on our own internal tools into tools that um, students could use. And, and that's gradually evolved into our Solar Champions program. And in the last year, I think three or four of the schools that we completed were student-led initiatives. They were started by uh, students and teachers um, who did the initial um, sort of mock-ups and layouts. We then worked with them and we helped them with the presentations and we guided them. Uh, we then involved them in, in the initial site survey. So we went around the school with the students and the drone. They love taking photographs with the drone. Uh, and so we then, well, wow, we should probably build that process into our into our development process. So now our, our partners, our we often send our education partners in to do the initial site survey and they do a workshop with the students and then they go around the school with a drone and taking photographs of it. And that's become part of the, of the process. Um, and But this led us to the point where we saying, well, well, how far could we take this? And so we've just got a grant from the UK um, to develop a mobile app that will first teach students the basics about uh, carbon literacy and energy and then it will lead them through the process of developing a project for their own school and ultimately doing the site survey for that school so that we have all the information we need to prepare a proposal that they can then share and distribute within the school to get that project to happen. And this is part of the, the app is kind of an extra level up on part of a strategy that's evolved over the last year, which is sort of a two-pronged attack. What we were, were discovered is that most schools would like to do solar, but it's too far down on their priority list, especially if there are no direct savings. They kind of like to do it. And yes, it needs to be done at some point, but they've got lots of other priorities. By the students being involved in that project, it pushes the priority up the, the, the list. So that's part of the strategy to increase the conversion ratio and enable more schools to go solar. This is a fantastic haha moment when, when the students actually tell you that they would like to use the software themselves to, to, to build the solar panel systems uh, and how did you arrive to that point i mean how where were, were you actually seeking feedback from the students at that time or was it from you know a friend of of your of your daughter or, or kids that just told you that so how did that moment happen how do you put yourself in a, for the future entrepreneurs other entrepreneurs here who try to really get their product right how did you Get yourself in that situation to manage to have that feedback from the student. Uh, well, I have three kids, um, so I must have showed it to them at some point, and they had a go at it, and they quite enjoyed doing it. Um, so, with that at the back of my mind, we were then invited to some school conference uh, where students came around to understand what we were doing and to understand about solar. And so, I took a couple of computers along with me and set them up so that they could then look up their own school and and see what happened uh, so that was another sort of clue uh the feedback i got from that um but actually interesting enough 
the idea of possibly doing this had come up maybe earlier, but I'd actually parked it and decided not to pursue it because our education advisory group was very concerned about us being seen to use students uh, to sell what we were doing. And and so and we agreed with that. I mean, it's a very gray, well, a dangerous moral uh, area to cross. So we kind of parked it. Um, but then when a German council actually paid us an additional premium over the cost of the solar panels to involve the students with the process, yeah. And then when Greta Thunberg was basically persuading kids to stop going into school, yeah, uh, for climate change, we thought, hang on a minute surely far better for the students to spend time in school developing a solar project rather than marching on the streets. And so a combination of one council paying us to involve the students in the process and Greta Thunberg again um, prob- led us to believe that actually I think this is morally acceptable to provide the tools to students and if they want to develop a project, then great. And now they are completely involved in the in, in your iterative process to, to improve the, the, the app and the software, I guess. The grant includes um, three or four iterations with students, I think starting with 10, then 100, then 1,000 as part of the three iterations of the the app. So yes, a lot of students will be involved in fine-tuning the app. Okay, and when you talk about creating trust for the the schools, that was one of the hardest things you you encountered. Um, Besides Greta helping you on the message to like to to push the message have you and and the the teenagers and the kids and the students like showing interest for the for for your product is there something you've done or adapted to manage to create more trust uh, to to the with these schools so we did a number of things to try and um demonstrate trust or earn trust uh The first thing we did is, before we had any school reference sites, it's really difficult to persuade a school to jump up and sign a 25-year contract with an organization that has done no schools before. And it just so happened that uh, we knew a company who'd already done 20 or 30 schools, but didn't want to do it anymore. But they needed someone to sort of take over and look after those schools and provide some element of educational content to their schools for the lifetime of those projects. So they basically enabled us, we, we, we joined forces, um, and that enabled us to show a reference list of schools that we'd worked with. And one of their key members of staff joined us as part of that. So that person could say, look, I've already done these 30 schools, and I'm going to help you go solo. So that was one. Um, we basically acquired a track record. The second thing we did was in our pre-seed round, we raised money from an organization called the Low Carbon Innovation Fund, which was uh, owned or set up by the University of East Anglia. And we felt that having a stamp of approval from a university would also provide a level of credibility. Uh, The third thing we did is we provided a profit share. So when a school signs up, uh, for solar funded by a, the, by the entity we use to fund the systems, and I'll come back to that entity in a second. Part of that deal is that, yes, they get to pay for the electricity from it, uh, but 
if there's any money left over in the pot after the investors have been repaid, they get a profit share in that. And that that vehicle that we set up, it's a community benefit society, and the community benefit society members are the schools themselves. So this is the the, the final uh, step in terms of making it easier for schools to sign up is they're not signing up with some um, pension fund. There's nothing wrong with a pension fund or investor that they, they have no influence over, but they're signing up with a, a club, effectively a society of schools where the schools themselves are the members, the schools themselves vote for the directors. Yeah. And, and that, that club is the one funding and owning the assets on their roof. And that final step, it was quite controversial because you have to explain it and it's a little more complex to explain. But once schools understood that basically they're joining a club of other schools, the more schools in that club, the easier it is for them to join. And that's created a virtual a virtual circle of, of, of trust. And some of the directors, for example, on that, on, on that community benefit society are the estates managers of those schools who in turn are helping other estates managers go solar through this vehicle. So that was the, th- the third step. The first step was the references. The second step was a trusted label. And the third step was this, this creating a vehicle where they own part of it. That's, that's a fantastic strategy. And uh, especially, I think, very valuable to learn from any entrepreneurs out, out there. Um, when you actually talk about the, the schools and how they are involved in it, um, talking about the, the the funded model, so you are you basically have the investors who put the money in in in, in your company. Uh, you have yourself who have to take some of the money to to manage the whole project, and then uh, you also have the schools as you explained it, and also like you have to take a part of that money to create the education, the educational tools that you are developing. So how do you split, how have you decided to split the, you know, the revenue and the profit between all these stakeholders in, in, your, in your company? That's a very good question. Um, and one that took a little while to clarify, but it's actually quite straightforward. So there are two parallel sets of companies. Um, the the operational uh, companies that um, it, and we have one in each country where we operate in uh, who together are developing the tools, the platform, um, the educational materials, the software that goes around it uh, and helping those first schools come on board um, and developing those projects. Uh, and that is all funded through uh, equity investors share, uh, who have shares in that business uh, that funding is expensive because it's a sort of relatively risky endeavor certainly in the early days um, and you want to you know grow as much as you possibly can with as little as money as possible to to, to, to not overly dilute um, over time um, so that's one but then in most renewable sectors you you have the assets themselves someone has to fund the systems on each school And that's done in a separate parallel vehicle. And I mentioned the the example of the UK where we have this community benefit society. We're not shareholders in that at all. I happen to sit on the board and help set it up. Um, 
but we it's a sort of arm's length arrangement. It has an independent board. There's a whole lot of contracts between us and that organization in terms of developing projects for them at a set price, at a set financial return, looking after those projects at a set annual fee, uh, looking after the investors in that in, in, in that organization for a set uh, annual fee also. And, and those are arm's length sort of commercial agreements between the two. And that means that if we then raised 100 million to, to develop assets into through the through that that parallel community benefit society, it doesn't dilute us. Yeah. And equally, if us as the operating company happen to go out of business next year, those assets are protected. They could just find someone else to manage it for them. Uh, and, and that's a very important division of a risk. Uh, and also, you can raise money for the assets now at three or four percent. Whereas to raise money for equity to build the business, um, investors typically would expect a better return over time because of the risk involved in building a business. Does that does that make sense? Have I explained that clearly? I think so. The follow-up question would be, Does it is, is that why you set up as well different companies depending on the countries you're operating to? No, so the different countries, trees are mainly because uh, when we set up Germany, a German council or a German school didn't want to enter into an agreement with a UK company, <laughs> Brexit. Um, and in India, we set up a company because that's where we set up our development team and our back office. And we wanted to develop some projects there. And we wanted a local partner to be involved. And the easiest way was to set up a new company in India where they owned 26%. You know? So that was the reason why at the operating level, we have a number of companies. Um, at the asset level, i.e. financing the, the, the solar projects on each school, then that's typically you need one of those per country because of the regulations around fundraising. Um, and, and therefore, it makes sense to pool assets by by geographical location. Okay, so you have like the, the, the companies created based on the assets in the different countries plus... India for the like developer uh, developer team, and that's it. Yeah, and we don't plan to have more country subsidiaries. We plan now that we've proven it in three countries with our own teams to then roll out our platform to partners in new countries. You're not planning uh, on a you know exit scenario here. You're planning the investors know they're going to make money because. Of the percentage you're gonna make, they're gonna take on all the the management you are doing. So at the asset level, they make a fixed return. Uh, it depends on the country, but in the UK, it's going to be three and a half to four percent in the future. Uh, in Germany, also in the past, it's been five percent. If they're going to invest in India, it'll be obviously higher to compensate for exchange rate risks. What would be the assets here you're talking about? The solar panels. Yeah, so they're investing in the solar panels on a school. Uh, you make between, I don't know, maybe in the future in the UK, it'll be even less, two percent to four percent. It's a it's a, a reasonable return for very low risk social impact investment. That's on the on the asset side of things. At the operational business level, um, our investors expect that one day the company will either IPO or be sold to a larger company, uh, and that's how they will make their return. Uh, or um, that the company will become 
uh, increasingly profitable as it scales uh, because as you scale and become more of a sort of providing a software platform to more and more partners, then it effect- eventually becomes a very profitable business in its own right. That's not my short-term driver. Uh, my short-term driver is to generate income to grow faster. Yeah, So it needs to be at a, margin, a very positive gross margin to enable us to develop the platform and grow into more countries and expand and support more partners in more countries quickly. But ultimately, one day, once you've done that uh, and you can't grow anymore, that's going to be a while yet, um, then it starts to become very profitable. But at that point, maybe maybe you either IPO or you sell. But worry about that later. At the moment, is how can I fund growth as efficiently as possible? And now that you're talking about funds, perfect transition, you said that raising funds for a company that started life being perceived as a social venture, helping schools save money with solar panels or worse, uh, just another installer or solar project developers. That's how you were perceived. And that's made it very hard for you to raise funding. So can you explain, iterate a bit on that? The, the sort of investors sort of tend to fall or did tend to fall in quite classic boxes. Either you are a pure VC focused on some software technology company that's going to grow at you know, 30% per quarter or even faster, 30% a month. Um, and the social impact thing is irrelevant. Uh, or there was a whole bunch of social impact investors who loved the idea of investing on solar panels on um, in Africa, but weren't really focused too much on a social return, on a financial return. And my view has always been, or our view has always been, that in order to grow quickly and sustainably over a, you know, a decade or so, uh, you need to have a financially viable underpinning. It can't be a charitable thing. We can't just expect donations and give away solar panels on schools. That just doesn't grow fast enough. Lots of people have tried that. It just doesn't grow. Yeah, people get tired of it. Um, you have to have a financial model underneath it that, that, that drives that growth. And, and so therefore, we, for a while, fit just between those two. Now, as we've grown and proven ourselves and the world has changed a little, the, the social impact investors have realized they need a financial return and the financial investors realize that the world is becoming more socially focused and carbon reduction focused. And now we then tick those boxes better. And the other thing is that whereas at the beginning, if you'd looked at us, you'd saw some project development and not much software. Now we've got a lot of software to show. And yes, we happen to do some project development in order to develop the software. But at the beginning, it was a bit difficult to say we're a software company when actually all they could see was three assets we just developed. Perfectly explained. Thank you very much. Uh, and that's great to see that, uh, you know, the VC tends to now take more into account the social impact. Uh, that's something that came up also with, you know, with Lubomila. Uh, if you if you want, like, lots of green tech uh, companies and, and CEOs and founders, if you want to convince investors uh Social impact is one thing, but money is the other one. And I think in a perfect world right now, we still are in a capital, capitalistic world. You need to have both if you are uh, if you want to be a green tech uh, founder with an impact. You need to be able to, to combine both and find a, a way to have a big impact, but also to generate money with it. In terms of challenges you faced, you also told me that 
It was hard for you to expand globally with a small team and limited resources until the model was proven. So what what did you do to to overcome that challenge? I think that the other way to answer is why, knowing that it's difficult to be in three countries as a small company, why did we enter three countries at such an early stage in our in our progress? Why didn't we just stay in the UK until we were larger and more mature? And the reason for that was that I'd seen the solar space and I'd seen the dependence on subsidies. And I knew that in the early days to be entirely dependent on a single country was too dangerous. And we had to have at least two legs and ideally three legs to stand on. And whilst when we started, the UK was a great place to be, in 2017, the market was completely dead. And if we'd only been in the UK at that point, we would have died too. But by that time, we were starting to build a number of projects in Germany. So 2017, we survived because we had operations in Germany. And then India, why did we go for a third country? Well, we spent a lot of time thinking about what country would we do third. And uh, India has a number of advantages. One, it's English speaking, and most of us were English speaking. The law is very similar to English law, uh, and therefore most of our contracts could be replicated and reused. India is a relatively low-cost country. I mean, compared to Europe, it's it's very reasonable. And therefore, we could build uh, a back-office team in India at a fraction of the cost of uh, Europe. Um, and therefore, our few pounds that we had could go further, and we could develop more and create more with a very limited resource. So it was circumstance that and strategy that forced us into three countries, and therefore, we had to make it happen. Um, if we just stayed in one country, we wouldn't be here today. It was a good strategy recommendation that goes against, I think, some of the you know best practice that you sometimes hear. No, no, but I think in generally case, general cases, I'd be incredibly wary of going multi-country um, early. It's it, it's incredibly painful. I mean, just consolidating our accounts before you have a CFO, because, you know, when you're a startup, you don't have a CFO, is horrible. And it, it's taken a vast amount of time in the last year to get our accounts to the point where the three different, or the, the, the parent company and the two subsidiaries all report in the same fashion in a, in, 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 a, in a structure that makes sense. And we can get management accounts out of it on a regular basis. And so I would absolutely not recommend going into more countries until you absolutely have to. In our case, we absolutely had to very early on. And who took the role of the CFO in that case? Was it you just like spend extra hours to just make sure everything was done properly? Yeah, I, I, I hate bookkeeping and accounts. And I must have done something very bad in my previous life because I spent far too much time doing that in the last uh, 18 months. But I'm delighted that we've now found a brilliant CFO who's going to be joining us in this fundraising. So yeah, I, I did a lot. Um, actually, one of our shareholders is a chartered certified accountant, and he's been a huge help in the last year. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, we have you know bookkeeping companies in each of the countries that we operate in, and they've been reasonably helpful. But they 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 did make they made sure that we complied in each country, but that weren't particularly helpful in terms of a, a an overview and consolidation um, of the business as a whole. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about the, the business models. Um, you said, you know, you went through, of course, selling to schools is very hard. As you said, it's very particular. 
And beside the, the long uh, iteration process, what are the different business models you've considered and that uh, until you, you picked up the one you have right now? So I think what you're referring to is when we first started is we were focusing obviously on selling to schools because that's our, our, our current, our, our end customer. Uh, and then over time we realized that actually the schools are part of councils and other networks and we have to work with them. And then over time we realized that actually local community energies are best, better positioned to work with them or local utilities. So for example, in Germany, a lot of councils own the utility. So by partnering with the utility and providing the utility with the tools, they can speak to the councils much more easily than we can. Yeah. And so over time, it's gone from a direct to the school model to an indirect model through partners. And, and that's a challenge too, because the skills that you need to talk to a school is not the same skills that you need to then train a partner and manage a partner or work with a utility or work with a community energy group. And the other challenge we had when we first started working with community energy groups is they saw us as a competitor. They, 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 they saw our project development piece rather than our software piece And, and, and the project development piece is arguably competing against them to develop a project in their territory, very territorial, very territorial community energy groups. And so it took a while to say, no, 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 no. We did project development because we wanted to develop the software. We've now developed the software. We want you to use the software. And, 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 and that transition has been, been, been interesting. And it has challenges. Yeah. And in terms of growth, because you have all these different partners or like, let's say, stakeholders you interact with, like the energy, the councils, the energy communities. What has been what has been your your growth strategy so far and what has worked for you? Roughly speaking, there's three types of partners. There are new country partners, which are typically a project developer uh, who wants to branch out in that country. And the idea is we then start with that project developer and if they're really good, they might then become part of us or we acquire them in the future. So that's our new country strategy is to find project developers. And those, the first ones we found through our network of shareholders, so it's personal recommendations. Um, but now we're starting to use LinkedIn to find them. So through our extended network um, of sort of uh, three and a half thousand contacts in LinkedIn, through that you can then typically find someone in solar in pretty much any country. So we're starting to do that. So that's at the, pro at the country level. Within the countries that we've already sort of established a base and we then want to go deeper, then you work either with utilities uh, or through uh, community energy groups. Uh, on the utility front, there's typically half a dozen utilities in any one country, apart from Germany, where there's lots. But actually, most of those, a lot of the smaller utilities are right E.ON. So that's very easy. You find uh, the utilities. One of our shareholders was a former CEO of a utility. So through his network, we can find the utilities and speak to the utilities. So that's the utility branch. And the third branch is the community energy groups. Now, most countries have an association of community energy uh, groups. Uh, and in the UK, we're in conversations with the Community Energy England, uh, who are keen to promote our tools to their members to enable the members to be more effective. Um, in Ireland, which is one of the countries that we're starting to look into, uh, we have um, an initial conversation with the SEAI, which is an agency that's set up, or one of the roles of that agency is to help new community energy groups get going. So that's how we're going to then reach out to community energy uh, groups in Ireland. For Germany, there's an association of community energy groups. In Belgium, there's a uh, community energy association for the whole of Europe. 
Uh, and we've had a number of conversations with them. They've just redesigned their website. Their website now has a bunch of tools aimed at community energy groups to become more effective. And the idea is that we would then provide our systems as tools uh, via uh, that association. Um, and the same for Germany and uh, yeah, UK and Ireland we're running conversations with. And we're about to be introduced to the French Association of Community Energy Groups too. So that's how we then tackle community energy groups. And then the final group is education partners. Um, and that we we search through our network of existing education partners. Um, we And through searching through LinkedIn, we find new education partners. So that's how we recruit those that, that third set of, or that fourth set of partners. Great. Thank you. So like a, basically like direct contact to the local community energy groups and electrical utilities because there are not so many of them. And then it's easy to expand through them. And then also solar project developers through LinkedIn mostly. Correct. Direct approach through LinkedIn and through associations. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't require a significant marketing budget. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's good that not everything in your area uh, uh, is hard. <laughs> that's uh, some some easier part too. Jan Mikkel Hess, the, the founder of like the Eco Summit. Ask me uh, a question of LinkedIn. You know, every time I ask um, the people in our newsletter or sometime on on LinkedIn, if they have questions for for our guests, and this time Jan asked me how many of your school TV systems have been initiated by students in their own schools so far. So I believe that the, the projects we currently have in the UK three, uh, in Germany one, and of our current pipeline. Um, Well, it depends which pipeline, but there's one pipeline that's actually been, the entire pipeline has been driven by a youth group in Yorkshire. So it's a bunch of kids who want to set up a community energy group and we're working with them and that will be multiple schools. So going forward, it'll be an increasing number. Uh, what percentage? I couldn't tell you at this stage. It depends on the balance between community energy groups, students stroke youth groups and utility partners. Good. And to, to jump And to transition from that question from Jan, so he's the founder of the Ecosummit, and that's basically how I discovered you as well. So Ecosummit is uh, an event for investors to meet startups in the green tech world, let's say. Um, how much would you recommend an entrepreneur to go pitch the startup at, a, at that kind of event? Like how, how much did it bring you? Oh, definitely worth doing. Um, and not just because I know Jan personally and he's a shareholder, Um, which I should disclose, uh, but but uh, but it, the, the 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 physical events are mega. They're they're in, they're fantastic. They they are one of the longest going events in the renewable energy space. His network with utilities and VCs is phenomenal. So if you want to meet other VCs in the space, it's probably the best event you can go to. Um, in, in Europe. And then at the moment, obviously he's not doing them, uh, physically, but he's doing them online every month. Um, and there is anywhere between 40 and a hundred people attending and it's definitely worth it. We've, we've picked up a couple of, uh, interested investors in our current fundraising as a result of, of, of pitching, uh, at Eco Summit. So definitely recommend it. Good. When I, uh, ask you, to recommend some do's and don'ts about how to sell a product to schools to educate kids on climate change. You said 
be relentless, keep on trying and be patient to find like a, and find support for these efforts. Can you explain us why you said that? Yeah, and, and I guess most entrepreneurs and most professors of entrepreneurship will tell you that perseverance seems to be the number one criteria that determines success. Um, uh, so at the risk of saying the same thing over again, what I might add to that is that most businesses that I know that have been successful, it wasn't the first version of the idea that succeeded. It was the second or third iteration. And depending on the segment you're in, how long it takes you to iterate two or three times could be months if it's some sort of mobile app, uh, but it could be years if you're dealing with a sales cycle that takes a year. Um, and therefore, yeah, maybe if you've been trying to sell a mobile app for two years and you've done four iterations, maybe that's enough. Yeah, But if it's a business where the sales cycle is a year and you've been doing it for two years, that's probably too soon to give up. Give yourself the time. And it's difficult Great. to know. And I think the key point is it's difficult to know how much time, right? Everyone says, well, you've got to keep trying, you've got to keep trying. But equally, you know, I knew someone who tried to to market a coffee machine um, that required capsules. And he spent 10 years trying to do that. And what happened in his case, it, it wasn't going to work. You needed someone like Nestle who's got a huge infrastructure system that then basically just developed the Nespresso. So his idea was right, but he was just never going to get that idea to work because he was in the wrong place to do it. Yeah. And he probably tried for too long. Yeah. Um, so it is possible to try too long. So how do you know what's long enough? And I think my formula would be three iterations and how long does it take to do three iterations? And if it's a quick business and it takes three months to do an iteration, then you should know within a year. And if it's a slow business because of slow cycles and it takes a year, then you should allow at least three years. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's a question that like, like that I ask myself as well very often. And, and that is, is very common for entrepreneurs. When do you have to give up? And uh, I think, as you said, having three iteration, it's the first time I hear that as a rule, but it's actually could be a good thing. Uh, three real iteration when you really change something, whatever is the business model or the target audience or something. Uh, but it, sometimes it's just a question of timing, as you said, or resources as well. Because as you said, I think me, my division, but my answer in that case was sometimes to say, as soon as you're still motivated and as soon as you still can pay yourself or pay the people you you are working on that thing with. Um, because uh, in the case of your 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 your, your friend in the Nespresso of Nespresso idea, it's it's was resources maybe timing as well and so many uh, I don't know if you've read the book Outliers, um, it's it's a fantastic book that explains very very well that the, the most successful people uh, like Bill Gates or like in in all kind of different uh, verticals are. The most successful ones are actually so successful because they are at the right timing. It doesn't matter. Like, of course, they are they are brilliant. They have the right ideas. They have the right execution. But they became so big, and it would be almost impossible for someone else to become so big now because they were at the right timing when the informatic was like was starting to 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 scale up, for example, and to be able to to be in that level. I think what what was it uh, in the book they explained that you know like. Three or four percent of all the like the, the richest people from the, the the Silicon Valley have been there, 
but have been the one started the company within two or three years range because everything was booming at that time. Yeah, you, you have to, in, in the VC world, I used to say there's sort of three kind of companies that you can invest in. You can invest in a, a better mousetrap, which is going to be some you know much better version of something that already exists. Um, uh, a land grab, which is kind of project development, you know, how much, how much, how much projects can you develop before the, the, the subsidy is over or a rising tide and um, a good angle on a rising tide is the, is the way, best way. And if you think of it, software, 10 years earlier, 10 years later, you'd have missed the boat. Bill Gates was in the right place at the right time. Now, lots of other people were in the right place at the right time and he's succeeded, right? But equally, you, yeah, you have to be the right person and you have to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, uh, that, that's true. Uh, but there's always waves rising at somewhere, and it's a question of finding the right wave and, and or, or, or paddling for long enough until the wave comes along. Sometimes too, it's finding the right wave. So it's a good uh, metaphor for that. Um, let's finish to the and and move on to the like the last questions that I ask my guests. What's the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? How the best you can, and and, and that's it's such an obvious statement, but it's so hard to do um, because. When you're a real startup, you don't necessarily know what you want for the next two or three steps. You can't go and hire a CFO and a COO and a head of marketing from a multinational because they're just too big and too detached and used to having two assistants. Um, but equally, if you start with you know someone straight out of college, maybe that's the best person you should hire at that point. But at some point, then you need to hire other people around them. So you're 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 target of who you're hiring, your definition of the best possible person is constantly changing. Um, so to say how the best you can is easy. To know what the best is for every particular point in your evolution, that's the hard bit. I will love to have a, another episode just on that topic because I know you have a lot of experience into hiring and that's a, a subject, a topic that I really love as well. Uh, but thank you for, for this advice. What's your favorite question, talking about recruiting, actually, to ask candidates during your recruiting process? Uh, it depends on the interview, but um, I like uh, logic quizzes. So I tend to ask uh, a question around a bunker and three light switches, which if you really want to hear, I'll tell you. So you've come across a bunker. The bunker is completely sealed apart from a door at one side. On the opposite side of the bunker, there are three light switches, all in the off position. Inside the bunker, on a table, there's an old-fashioned incandescent light bulb lamp. It's connected to one of those three light switches. You need to fiddle with the light switches, do whatever you like to the light switches, within reason, don't destroy them, And then go into the room and tell me which of those three light switches control that light bulb. And you can only do it once. You can play as much as you like, but once you go into the room, that's it. That's a very good question. And uh, I, I, I'm not going to like, I, I will give the answer to those. Uh, I will give you the answer, but uh, like, I'm not going to make it as if I just find it out right now, because it's a question I think one of my professors asked me once. And then it took us a while to figure it out. And it's someone else actually in my class who found the, the answer. But, uh, and it's actually good that you say, if you would tell that to the kid, I think from this age, they would probably not be able to find it because I think 
if you go if you go inside and just switch one like uh, switch before beforehand and uh, and inside you you just switch one and then you before getting in and then you switch it off before getting in then because it, because it's a bulb you will just basically see which one is open uh, and link to the switch you you put on the switched on and then you will see the second one uh, with like switched off but still warm because it's a bulb an incandescent bulb and not an LED <laughs> that would be more difficult I think uh, but that's a that's a very very good question so uh, I think that's a correct answer isn't it correct correct I, I, and and you answered it very well uh, and most people no not most people do well uh, no one who has been asked a question who didn't get it has been hired let's put it this way um, uh, but 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 they don't all have to answer it perfectly. Uh, the best answer is someone who answered it within 10 seconds and then sent me a message afterwards saying, but of course you're assuming that A, the light bulb works and B, the wiring works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, which book would you recommend entrepreneurs to read? Mm, that's a tough question. I, I think I'd word it the other way around. I think reading is one of those things that you one should try and continue to do indefinitely and it becomes harder and harder as you become busier and busier to actually continue to read a book so i think i'd say switch to audiobooks it means you've got a better chance of doing it while you're brushing your teeth or you know, actually brushing your teeth is a bad example because it's too noisy but you know while you go for a walk or you're working to the s-bahn so so i no longer read i listen to audiobooks and the second thing is so that i actually remember the book i set up a book club so once a month i meet up with five friends we have far too much wine and cheese and we talk about the book that we read and then that helps me actually remember the book. Um, so, and there's lots of great books out there. Um, but if you can't remember them two years later, then not much point reading them. And having a book club helps you remember them. The book club is a fantastic idea. And talking about the audio books, for example, what is the last one, not that you read, but the last good one that you read or that you listened to? Sorry. So I uh, just finished reading uh, Scale which is sort of a study on uh, why, how humans scale and then how that applies to cities. Fascinating why cities, as they get bigger, become more efficient, um, but also to businesses. And actually, there's a natural... It's got, I can't remember the equation now, but I haven't had that book club session yet uh, to go through it to remember it. But there is a, a probability of a company surviving over a period of time, and it becomes incredibly small. Yeah, I mean, statistically, no company should really survive more than 200 years. Uh, yet the oldest company until recently was 527 years old or something, some Japanese family-owned business, making temples. And so for 500 years, they made temples. And then temples went out of fashion and they went out of business. Um, so that was quite a fascinating as to you know how companies grow and why they grow and how they scale. That was quite interesting. And before that, uh, attention merchants, uh, which is about advertising and how the advertising industry has become uh, far too sophisticated around capturing our attention through social media and the mobile apps that we install on our devices. And one of the uh, book, what, our favorite, one of our favorite books from our book club, which is a really unusual one, is uh, "Why We Sleep." And every single one of us now tries to sleep more at least an hour more than we used to as a result of reading that book. And I nearly made it compulsory reading for my team. That's great to know. And how does this book club works? 
does somebody take a book he has read or listened to and then make a summary and does he have to do it in like one minute to give a pitch or do you listen to him summarizing the book during 10 minutes without interact interrupting him? Um, so I think some book clubs do that. They make one person in charge of each book. Um, we all read typically one to two books in a month, uh, typically books that are related to each other. Uh, we don't all read both books. Some we can read one or the other. And then we basically have a debate and discussion around the book or the books and the variations and differences from them and what we've learned from it and what we might do differently as a result of uh, reading that book. Um, and it's interesting, we read quite a lot of books about uh, social equality, uh, the way societies are evolving, um, a lot of Val Harari's books around um, Homo Deus and the lessons of the 21st century and um, the politics of inevitability and where society is heading. And as a result of that, um, most of us are now actively engaged with our local communities in ways that we never were before uh, and trying to either be involved politically uh, or in the process of setting up a local um, community car sharing club um, or some other way to sort of influence society at a local level. So that's one of the interesting things that came out of it. That wasn't the plan when I set up the book club. Um, the plan was just to remember what I read. Um, very, very last question. Can you tell me one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online? When I first met my now wife, she helped me build an aircraft or start to build an aircraft. And then a few years later, when the, the aircraft was built, I didn't finish building it. Um, I took my wife, still not my wife at the time, just a friend, uh, flying in it. Really? Yeah. And it flew? Yeah, 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 it flew. So you mean it was an aircraft to fly, like not to, to fly you? Yeah, no, two people sit in it and you fly. Oh, really? Wow. Okay, so on that note, Uh, Robert, thank you so much again for your time and for sharing your experience and your, your fantastic um, feedback today uh, and, and tips for uh, setting up this, this company, Solar for Schools. Uh, I, I really hope that, you know, you are actually on a, on a rising like, tide yourself and that, you know, you are finding yourself, you've paddled enough to just be on the right wave right now and that you're going to build, uh, like help millions of schools to build a solar panels and to educate the children with it. Um, so thank you very much for that. Uh, where, I guess, I will share the link to your website, Solar for Schools. Is there any other link or anything you want to communicate to our audience before we leave? No, solarforschools.co.uk is fine. Or if you want the German audience, solarforkinder.de. Um, thank Super you very, very much for your time. It's been great fun, a very self-indulgent to talk about oneself. Um, and yes, I, I do really feel that we're on a rising tide and I'm super excited about the years ahead of us. If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way you will be notified of the new episodes, but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season. Plus, for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. 
And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs, and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way, we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children, and our planet. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.